All right, let's take his word. Let's turn to Luke chapter 19. When we look at the weekend events surrounding the death and resurrection of Christ, one of the most prominent aspects that stands out, at least it did for me over the past few weeks, was the amount of emotion that is shown in all the key players that are involved. It's certainly understandable based on the events, the importance of the situation. And what we find is people's level of emotion and type of emotion is directly proportional to the nature of their relationship with Christ. So those that were close to Christ were crestfallen that he was being crucified. Those that were plotting against Christ were obviously happy and and kind of scheming behind and were joyful. And then you have a lot of people in between. The 11 disciples that loved the Lord were, were obviously overwhelmed and sad. And yet we have the picture of Judas who's emotionally detached and counting his money and kind of meeting in secret with the Pharisees and then shows great regret. The women were very distraught, and that's contrasted to the Pharisees who were excited and joyful and had finally accomplished what they wanted to accomplish and put their plan in motion. Then you've got Herod and Pilate who who both recognize and say, there's nothing wrong with this guy, there's nothing wrong with Jesus, and yet Herod clinically mocks Jesus and is complicit in all the, the torture that takes place of him before the cross, and Pilate just coldly washes his hands of the whole thing and says, well, it's up to you. Your blood, his blood is on you. It's not on me. No big deal. And then in the middle, we've got the crowd. And the crowd is very fickle, and the crowd's praise is very temporary. And in the moment that we're going to see this morning in the passage we're going to look at, they're yelling out and praising Jesus as king and saying Hosanna. And, and, and there's great joy and great uh, acclamation for Jesus. And it's a powerful scene, and yet at the same time, it's very tragic because in the people at this point, there's still an underlying divide. There's still a sense that that they aren't quite there. And even many who praise him in this passage in Luke 19, in just days, are going to be crying out and saying he needs to die. Now, with all the people that are around Jesus, it's easy sometimes to lose him in the scene. And that's the emotion this week that really struck me and that I thought would be of the Lord for us to study. It's it's really surprising uh, in, in terms of what we would maybe expect how Jesus reacts, not only because of who he is and what he's doing, but because of the nature of the emotion and the depth of the emotion. Here he comes to be crucified for our sins And here, as he's doing that, and as we have this great scene that we've known for years, we've got the palms and people are laying their coats down, we we see Jesus giving us a fresh revelation into the heart of God. Not that God is just spiteful and, and just ready to judge, almost gleeful about it. I get to kill people and I get to send them to hell and... And now there's been, as we talked about a few weeks ago, this this overreaction back on the other side that God can't possibly judge anybody, that he has to love everybody. Everyone will be saved and we'll all hold hands and sing kubaya. Let's not overreact because this is a hard picture. We know that God will judge sin. But before we get to the end, let's not miss the middle. And the middle is that God really does love the world. And God really does want to save people. He wants every single person to be saved. And he really does want us to be at peace with him. 
before we get to the death and resurrection, let's see the heart of God in Jesus. Now, because context is important, just turn back a page to chapter 18 and let me just, in, in one or two minutes, summarize what's going on. Because context is key. And we have to understand, coming into this chapter, setting up this last week of Christ's life before the crucifixion, there are five distinct events in chapter 18 that take place. The first part is that Jesus teaches about prayer and about our response, about the response of God to our faith. Then he tells a parable about uh, a man who was proud and self-righteous, even though he was religious, even though he thought, I'm the man, he was very proud and arrogant, and God really kind of didn't hear him. And he's contrasted to a man who's humble and broken and grateful for God's grace. Then a man comes to Jesus, a rich young ruler, and he says, I've obeyed the law to, to the point of, of almost perfection. I have really done what has been asked to do. But Jesus says, that's wonderful. You're a great guy. But in order to really follow me, you need to get rid of all you have and, and, and come follow me. And the man goes away sad because it was too much to ask in his mind to give himself. It was too much to lay aside everything, all his material possessions, to follow Christ. Then as Jesus moves closer, he reaches Bartimaeus, who was a blind man. And he heals him, and he says, because of your faith, you're healed. And that's a spiritual metaphor there for the blindness of the people and the fact that they could not see what was happening. We'll talk more about that in a moment. And then at the end of chapter 18, going into chapter 19, we see him have the interaction with Zacchaeus who was hated and evil and looked down on by society, not only because he was short, but because he was a tax collector. And then we see this remarkable and complete transformation of his heart and his character, and we see Jesus save him. Now, all of those events, each word that Christ spoke, each event that took place, leads up to this passage of the morning where Jesus makes his entrance into Jerusalem because he's speaking about the need for faith in the Lord. He's speaking about salvation by God's grace through himself, through Jesus Christ. He's talking about the requirement that self has to die for the soul to be saved. None of this is accidental. None of the things that Jesus is saying and doing and interacting with people is accidental. It's pointing them to the message of the cross. And the message of the cross is just a few days away in the timeline of the book of Luke. Now that gets us to chapter 19. And verse 28. Let's read along. Thank you for turning. After he had said these things, he was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he approached Bethphage and Bethany, near the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village ahead of you. There as you enter, you'll find a coat, colt tied on, which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you're untying it, you shall say, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away went and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the coat, its colt, his owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? They said, The Lord has need of it. They brought it to Jesus, and they threw their coats on the colt and put Jesus on it. And as he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, 
rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. When he approached Jerusalem, verse 41, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they've been hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side and they'll level you to the ground and your children within you and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Now, in verse 28, we see Jesus going on ahead. Knowing what was ahead, think about yourself in that situation, I think every single one of us would have run away. Knowing what faced him, and yet he moves on forward, I would think I would want to move as slowly as possible, but he moves on with great determination and great focus, as Philippians tells us, for the joy that was set before him to endure the cross. And he comes over from Bethany, which is southeast Jerusalem. If you would toss up the map, I would appreciate it. Thank you. You can see where Bethany is. I don't have my laser this morning, but you've got Bethany and Bethphage. They're kind of sister cities. Mount of Olives is right in the middle, so you would come down at the very bottom of the screen. You see a little road there. Uh, That's the road that comes around the Mount of Olives over and right between where it says Mount of Olives and the Temple Mount. That's the Kidron Valley and the Garden of Gethsemane. So Jesus is coming over from Bethany around the side, around the uh, southern side of the Mount of Olives, and he's coming over to Jerusalem. And he's riding on a young donkey, a colt, which on face value we would say is certainly insufficient for a king. It would make sense that Jesus at this moment of triumph would be riding a great stallion and that he would be coming in with power and authority and announcing himself as king, and the people would be in awe, and the Romans would look at it and go, we've got a problem, and the Pharisees would back off because of his great power and authority. But notice in the text that Jesus requests the colt. In fact, it's supernaturally prearranged. There's a colt that's tied up. You're going to go. The owners are going to ask you what the deal is, and you're going to say, the Lord has need of this. So you need to let us have it. And we see in the text that there's no argument there. So it wasn't the disciples' idea. It wasn't that they didn't have any other resources. So we've got to find something for him to ride. And we don't have a Mazda. And we don't have a horse. So, hey, there's a donkey. Let's grab that. That's not what happened. Jesus says, I want this mode of transportation. We see the humility. We're going to see that in just a moment. So they start out. And they come out from Bethany, and they go over the Mount of Olives, and they go down toward Jerusalem. This is the same path, if you see that blue building in the middle of the screen, this is the same path that Jesus will take when he comes back at the second coming. He will come down, he will stand on the Mount of Olives, it will split wide open, and he will walk straight down the valley through the Garden of Gethsemane, where he prayed the night he was betrayed, and he will walk right up to Jerusalem, If you've ever seen a picture of Jerusalem, you know that there is a gate, one gate that's closed. It's called the Eastern Gate. He will break it open and walk right into the Temple Mount. So Jesus takes the path here on the way to the crucifixion that he will take when he comes to reign again. Now let's see what it looked like as he came over. Thank you if you'd go to the next slide. This is a picture, this is a model that's been built of Jerusalem. 
This is what it would have looked like as he came around. You see that big structure in the middle. That's the temple mount. And that's the temple as it looked in his day. You see that Jerusalem was a very small city. That there was nothing around it. Everything was pretty much encased within the walls. If you go to the next slide, you'll see how Jerusalem looks today. And you see now instead of the temple and the temple mount, there is now a mosque. And you see the growth of Jerusalem around it. But you notice the front. Everything in the Kidron Valley is still untouched. There's been no building, no settlements, because that's where Jesus is coming. And nothing's going to be in the way, and even if it was, he would get rid of it. So we have a sense of what Jesus saw as he came around. And if you look back at the text, you see that as they begin this journey, this is one thing that struck me, I'd never seen it before this week. Things apparently were pretty quiet. There wasn't a lot of conversation going on because it's not till verse 37 that it says, as they got closer, then the disciples started to yell and praise. So I wonder what it was like when they first started out. And Jesus gets on this donkey and he's kind of too big for it. And they start to lay their coats out as kind of a humble red carpet before him. And the donkey starts to walk and and there's a sense that Jesus isn't all upbeat and happy, that there's there's a somberness to him. And it seems from the text that that between verse uh, 35 and verse 37, that the attitude and the atmosphere is a little bit quiet. Now, as we get to verse 37, the disciples start to praise. And the crowd starts to swell. And there starts to be this, this, this loud rejoicing. Maybe it was when they saw Jerusalem. Maybe there was an anticipation there of what this might mean. They would have been very visible from Jerusalem. If you go to the next slide, you can see if you're standing pretty much on the Temple Mount, this is the view toward the Mount of Olives, and it's not far. So as they came around on the right side of this picture, they would would have been visible. It would have been obvious. The shouting would have been heard because it's kind of a natural amphitheater there. And there were no machines. There were no planes going over. There was nothing mechanical It was quiet. So all of a sudden, as you're standing in Jerusalem, in this tiny little town, all of a sudden you hear something on the Mount of Olives. And you look up, and here's Jesus on the donkey. And all these people around, and they're waving palm branches, and tearing them off trees, and they're throwing their coats in the ground, and they're shouting and praising God. It's quite a scene. Now, this is a pivotal moment. I've tried to set the scene as best as I can, but understand that this is a very pivotal moment because a lot of people are thinking a lot of different things. Is Jesus finally going to take on the Pharisees? Or is he being baited by them? Has he kind of fallen into the trap of coming to Jerusalem? Is Jesus now moving his ministry headquarters from Galilee to Jerusalem? Is he going to start being in the temple every day? Is something new going on? Is this a a fresh change in his ministry? Is he truly the Messiah? Could this really be real? Is he going to establish Israel's kingdom again? Is he going to take on Rome? All of this is in people's minds. And the crowds rush out to meet him. And the yelling grows. And I think the disciples got more and more energized at this point. They hadn't really heard what he was saying. They hadn't really heard him saying, I'm going to go to Jerusalem 
and I'm going to be crucified. In fact, five days later, they're sitting at dinner, and he says, I'm about to be betrayed. They still don't get it. So it's not like the disciples understand the gravity of the situation and are saying, he's going to Jerusalem to be killed. They're yelling and laughing and praising. They don't get it yet. So all the people are praising him. Look at the text. They're praising him for the miracles that he's done in the past. They're praising him for the present moment of what's happening. They're praising him for the potential of the future. But the picture is odd. Jesus is not acting like a political warrior. He's not a stronger version of David at this point. He's not the one who's going to challenge Rome and set up a powerful new kingdom. They should have remembered Isaiah, excuse me, Zechariah's prophecy in Zechariah 9.9 when he said, Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He's just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. They should have recognized that. But their thoughts are all over the map. And they're thinking, king, potentially, taking on the Pharisees, potentially. They're thinking maybe he's a warrior, and yet he's on a colt. He has no sword. He's never in any way spoken about challenging Rome. He's never said, I'm going to go there, and I'm going to wipe them out with my power, and I'm going to set up my kingdom. There's been no promise of any confronting Herod or Pilate, but still the people have their own ideas. Isn't it easy to get misguided with our priorities and to miss the reality of what the Lord's doing because we're focused on ourselves? It's so easy to miss the the obvious things that God says to us because we're thinking, what is in it for me? And and sure, they needed uh, relief from the Roman oppression. But they were totally missing the point of the real need. It was as old as their ancestors wandering in the wilderness when God said, I will be your God and I will lead you. And the people said, that's great, but we don't want to follow you. And then when the kingdom was established and God said, I'll be your God and I'll be your king. And the people said, that's wonderful, but we want a human king. And when God said, you better watch out because I'm about to scatter you and take you away unless you follow me. And the people said, that's great, but we want to worship false gods. They always missed it. Because when we set ourselves first and do not set him on the throne of our lives, we never experience what God wants to do. That's why Jesus weeps. He knows Rome will eventually prevail and Jerusalem will be knocked down and the people will be scattered. But I want you to see this morning and I want you to get this, that his tears are not for stones and mortar. His tears are for the spiritual neglect of the nation. Many had turned aside. Many had rejected him because the words were too hard. The expectations were beyond their comfort level. The rich young ruler who precedes this almost immediately is a perfect metaphor for the spiritual condition of the nation. If you ask me to yield my life in order to follow you and to be willing to give everything up and that nothing's more important than you, that's too much to ask. The requirements are too hard and I'll find another way. That's why Jesus said, if you don't hate everybody else in proportion to me and you don't hate everything else, in proportion to me, you're not worthy of me. 
If everything else isn't not second, not third, not fourth, but 56th, if everything else isn't so utterly ridiculous compared to me, then you're not worthy of me. And yet the people always looking for alternatives. Now here's what's fascinating. Let's go back to the text. Jesus is finally getting some of the adulation that he deserves. The people are finally praising him as one. So we might expect that he'd be full of joy. He's finally getting his recognition. People are finally getting it, it would seem. And that's what most of us would want. Just, I just want to be justified. I just, I just want people to recognize who I am and what I'm doing. That's how we think as humans. But now, oh, interesting, that, that Jesus never, prior to this text, ever put himself in a situation where he drew attention to himself. You ever thought about that? He's always saying to people, don't tell them. Don't go and broadcast what I'm doing. I'm going to go up into the mountain. I'm going to avoid the crowds. I'm going to slip out of this situation. Disciples, you deal with all these people. I've got to go pray. I need some time to myself. We need to go out on the boat. Let's get away from the crowds. Jesus is never saying, everybody, come here. I got something to say. Down on the hillside, got some food for you. Got a nice program for you this morning. I've got a message for you. And and everybody, he never does that. This is the only time when he acts contrary to that. This is the only time where, where he essentially allows the disciples to say, we want people to see you. But notice the context. He uses a borrowed donkey. He allows the people to put their coats down like a red carpet. Even minor celebrities in Hollywood get more attention than Jesus is getting at this point. And the people are tearing the palms off the branches and they're throwing them and waving them. But his attitude, his heart, is humble. The crowd's excited. They're envisioning this restored throne of Israel. But he knows that the cross is ahead. He here is not saying, look at me. He's not saying, I'm the king. He's not saying, everybody pay attention. You Pharisees, back off. You people that are, that are questionable, you better listen. There's no attitude here. All he was doing is saying to Israel, it's your final chance. It's your final chance. This is the week. Israel, it's been a long, long journey. Recognize what's happened. 400 years, I was silent. Then the angels appeared, and they said, Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And you've watched me, and you've seen my ministry, and you've heard me teach. And you know that the Pharisees hate me. And you know that I've called you to repentance, like my predecessor John the Baptist came and said, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And my first words to you were, Repent. And I've done miracles to prove the power of God. I'm about to go to the cross. Israel, you better pay attention. This is it. It's coming to a head. You need to repent. And the people in some sense got it because they're shouting Hosanna. Hosanna means save now. But what they're crying for is political salvation. They're not crying for spiritual salvation. And that's why, and this gets us to the, to the heart, to where we want to be. That's why Jesus wept. Because he knows what's going to happen. He knows their hearts 
he knows they are mostly going to abandon him within five days. Even his closest disciples will run. The crowds will move from yelling, praise God, praise God, our king is here, to crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And he knows the praise is temporary. This is not the true cry of hearts that love the Lord and are surrendered to the Lord and are unwavering to him. Listen, loud praise doesn't equal true faith. Emotionalism and shallow passion is a poor substitute for steady conviction. And yet on the flip side, passionless faith and a lack of fervent love and devotion to our Lord is just as inadequate. So the question is, is our love for the Lord really evident? Not a show, not some kind of persona that we put on to convince people that we're sincere, but an obvious, unwavering love for the Lord. Listen, we can criticize Peter a lot. He denied Christ. He did a lot of bad things, but he was there. That struck me again this week. Only he was there. John says there was another disciple, probably refers to him. So let's assume Peter and John were both by the fire. Only Peter and John were at the tomb. Where was everybody else? Why did they all run when the women came back and said, Jesus is alive? It's just Peter and John. They go run into the tomb. <laughs> but everybody else, eh, I don't know. We'll take it as it comes. We'll see. I don't know. Let's have another bagel. In the crowd, there were a lot of people that were going to go home and say, I was there. I was there on the Mount of Olives. We were praising Jesus. But when it comes to the cross, there are only going to be a couple. The crowd is praising him. But what's ironic, even though they didn't know what the praise was, they're just getting caught up in the emotion of the moment. What's ironic is they're actually being prophetic. The passage here, when you look at verse 38, they quote Psalm 118. They don't even know how true the fulfillment is because this really is their king. This really is their Lord. This really is the one who can bring peace, not just to nations, but to people's heart, to their relationship to the Lord, to eternal life. And Jesus now is turning his attention, even though this applies to everybody. He's now focusing in on Israel. Don't lose sight of God's work in Israel. We're so church-oriented. God still has a master plan toward Israel, and he is carrying it out. Israel is not forgotten. Israel right now is surrounded by every Arab nation that is intent on wiping it off the map. And it will not happen because God has not forgotten Israel. Now, he is broken for Israel. He rounds the corner, he looks at the city, and in the eternal now, he sees it all. He sees the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans in 70 AD. He sees the scattering of the people. He sees almost two centuries without a nation or a land. He sees the Holocaust. He sees the killing of millions of Jews by Hitler. He sees the rebirth of the nation. 
and the six-day war over the boundaries. He sees the peace talks of the 70s. He sees the present-day conflict in Israel with all the bombings and the Palestinians claiming their land and the divide over Jerusalem and the surrounding of the nation by the Arabs. And as I heard on TV the other night, the tsunami of radical Islam that's moving toward Israel. He sees the tribulation. He sees the Antichrist peace treaty. He sees the breaking of the treaty. And he sees the absolute cruelty and torment of the Jews for the last three and a half years of the tribulation. And he sees God's judgment on the people before God restores them and he comes back in a thousand years and reigns. He sees all of that. And in that moment, as he sees that, listen now, this is important. He is absolutely broken by it. And he starts to weep. Because Israel has always been a microcosm of man's rejection of God and rejection of Christ and the spiritually eternal destruction of souls that takes place for people that refuse to believe. Even at this moment, as they praise Christ, there is little perspective on who he is. The disciples aren't even really aware of that. They haven't understood. And I have to believe, because we see evidence all throughout, they may be thinking of themselves. Is their pride kind of swelling? Hey, finally get some attention. This is cool. Look at us. We're now justified for hanging with him for three years. When everybody else was fickle and the Pharisees were threatening everything. Look at us. We're in the middle. We're in the in crowd. I'm walking right next to Jesus. Come on, you know that happens. You know what pride is. We all deal with it. There had to be a little measure of satisfaction, a little smug smile. Cool. Look at us. Peter, look at us. We've come a long way from Galilee, haven't we? A long way from those boats and those nets. Look at us. Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. There was a hint of that a few days later in the garden when they were sleeping. And Jesus said, stay awake and pray. And they're surprised when Judas shows up and Peter fights back like he's going to be able to take on Rome with his sword. And then they run. And Peter, even the one who's most loyal, denies it. Ask yourself here, because this struck me. Did they notice he was crying? I, I've never thought about that before. Did they notice his grief? Oh, sure, they saw it. But did they understand it? And, and, and do we... Do we understand and have the heart of Christ? You know, Jesus is only recorded as crying twice. He cries at Lazarus' tomb and he cries here. And his grief here is not because he's going to suffer beyond what we can possibly comprehend, both physically and spiritually. He carries the weight of all our sins. His grief here is seeing the lostness of man because of the price of sin. And if you have ever doubted the love and mercy of God, or if you know someone right now that is saying, I don't think God really loves me, then you just showed them Jesus crying over the city. Because the word here is very definitive and very graphic. It means to weep and to wail like someone who is showing the pain of grief 
of mourning someone who is dead. Americans are very reserved in our emotions. But have you ever seen video of some woman in the Middle East who's just lost her child to a bombing? It's not... And you kind of go, really? I know you just lost a child, but that's a little over the top. Weeping and wailing and crying out because something is dead. This is what the text says. This is not just a couple tears coming down his face. I'm so sad. In this text, in this moment, Jesus is staring at what is dead. He's staring at a city that is dead, a nation that is dead, a world that is dead and in decay. And he wails. Is that your theology of Jesus Christ? Or is that not neat enough? Do you read that and believe it? And if so, how does it change you? I have to tell you this story. Friday night, I was down at the Iceplex. And I was sitting there waiting for Jacob to come out of his hockey class. And it was teen night. Scary. And around me were hundreds, and I'm not exaggerating, hundreds of teens, of course, talking as loud as they possibly could and yelling and screaming. But I was so amazed, and I'm, I'm, I've been around I was so amazed at the filth coming out of their mouth, at the way they were dressed, and I know I'm old, but cut me some slack. The way they were dressed, the disrespect for each other, the disrespect for adults, the sense of entitlement. I'm sitting right here. There's a kid next to me. He couldn't have been older than Andy. And I could not believe what was coming out of his mouth. Not just profanity, but... Absolute disrespect. No fear. Child was 10, maybe. And I got home and I said to Julie, you know what? We've already lost that generation. It's not a matter of, oh, somehow we can be clever and we can rescue them and we can entertain them and it'll work. I'm, I'm telling you, I'm not a pessimist. We have already lost that generation. The best we can hope is to train up our children in the way that we can, they should go and build into them and be strong in our convictions and present the gospel with love and warn people as, as we're broken over their lostness and then ask the Holy Spirit to do his work of conviction. We must know that we will not win people by entertaining them. We will not win people by being clever. Those kids don't care about my cleverness. They don't care about what song I present to them. They don't even care about this message. They're not here. What will convince them is the work of the Holy Spirit as we are sanctified and set apart and living with conviction. And we will win them by having the heart of God. In one sense, Friday, as I got home, I was so depressed and so angry that those parents have let those kids go and have entitled them and have given them a bad example. 
and I was depressed and angry that the church hasn't done a better job of showing them more conviction. But I'm telling you, the overriding feeling was that I was sad. That the enemy has succeeded in blinding their hearts and allowing them to be so disinterested in Jesus Christ. But God told us that will happen in the last days. And Jesus' entry into Jerusalem is the onset of the end. It's 2,000 years ago, but it's the beginning of the end. And Jesus said to us, the world will reject you because you love me. And you're going to get the same reaction that I did. Notice in the text that the Pharisees say, teacher. They absolutely refuse to say, king, savior, Lord, Messiah, Jesus, Christ. They just say, teacher. And these are the religious leaders. There's such a stubborn resistance to see the obvious truth because sin and pride blinds our hearts and they're so hard-hearted and rebellious. You're just the teacher and we're telling you to tell your little followers to knock it off. Shh, be quiet. How arrogant they were. It's the same message that we are getting as committed biblical Christians from our culture and even suddenly within the church in a sense. And here's what our answer is. We are not going to be quiet. We are not going to stop talking. Jesus said, if my followers are quiet, then the stones are going to cry out. I'd like to change that word stones to rocks. And I'd like to say, as Harbor Rock Tabernacle, that we are going to be a rock that stands for the Lord. And we're going to be a rock that cries out for the Lord. And even though the world will not accept that God is anything other than harsh and vindictive, and saying, like we heard recently, that everyone has to get into heaven, and even though the world's going to say, you're harsh and intolerant and unloving to love a God that's unloving, I would say again, point them back to the Savior that is weeping over the world, who says, it is not my desire that anyone should perish, but that all should come to repent. Look at Jesus' words. We're almost done. You've listened well. He says, if you had only known the things that make for peace. Again, not national peace, not political peace, but spiritual peace. They didn't get it. The problem wasn't a lack of knowledge. The problem was blinded hearts and blinded eyes that refused to acknowledge him as Savior and Lord. They could not see the destruction that was coming because they were focused on now and on themselves and they haven't given themselves to the Lord. And let me say, this is a danger to us as believers to be so surrounded by the truth and so surrounded by the conviction of the Holy Spirit and the accountability of the body of Christ, but to not be increasingly aware of the obvious, tenuous nature of the world. There is absolutely no way we should be missing God's warning. And there is absolutely no way we should be missing his call to prepare. I fully believe, even though he's talking to Israel, if you look at verse 42, I fully believe that that's a message to the church of Jesus Christ that we have to make sure that Jesus never says to us, if you had only known. 
that as a believer and as a church, God never comes back and says to us, if you had just paid attention, you wouldn't have missed this. Jesus weeps. He sees the danger and destruction that's coming, and he's so saddened by it because of the rejection that caused it, and he's essentially saying, it could have been so different. Look at what he says. We're done. If you had only known in this day, if you had recognized, last verse, the time of your visitation, that's significant because Daniel tells us that the time from the command to rebuild Jerusalem to the time when Messiah would be cut off would be 483 biblical years. A biblical year was 360 days. That equals 173,880 days. According to historians, Jesus entered Jerusalem exactly 173,880 days after the command to rebuild the temple was given. So the people actually could have counted. They could have woken up that morning and looked at their calendar and see the big red circle and said, Daniel prophesied that today was the day. We better get out to the Mount of Olives because Messiah is coming today. But he says, you missed it. You don't get it. And then he offers them a choice. If you had known in this day, even you, at that moment, he's again calling the people to repentance. He's saying, look at what's happening. Look at the truth. Get this now, Israel. Get this, people. He, I, I'm calling you. I am God in flesh. I am Messiah. I have proven it through my words and my miracles and, and my teaching. And you can understand right now, as I'm weeping over your nation, you can understand that God is gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and rich in love. And I'm, as I told you in John 14, I'm your only hope. The days are done. Israel's going to be destroyed. Jerusalem will be leveled. You should have counted. Today's the day. And the people are going, ah, and they don't get it. So Jesus weeps. He weeps. He knows that in 70 AD, as he says right here, look at the text. Your enemies are going to come against you and they're going to throw up a barricade and surround you. Jerusalem's going to be level. There's not going to be one stone standing on top of the other. And that includes the temple. And many of you will die. Even your children will die. History records that when Titus led the Romans into Jerusalem in 70 AD, he actually wanted to preserve the temple. But in the course of destroying the city, everything got knocked down. In fact, Josephus Flavius, who is the historian, writes that Jerusalem was, quote, so thoroughly laid even with the ground by those that dug it up to the foundation that there was nothing left to make those that came after to believe that it or Jerusalem had ever been inhabited. All the trees were cut down, the gardens were destroyed, and it became like a desert. Anyone who had seen the city before and came to it then wouldn't have recognized it, but would have asked, what city is it? On top of that, 1.1 million people were killed, 97,000 were captured and enslaved. And he writes that the slaughter was dreadful. Men and women, old and young, insurgents and priests, those who fought and those who asked for mercy, were cut down in indiscriminate carnage. 
they had to climb over heaps of dead to carry on the work of extermination. Titus, after it was all done, and after Jerusalem was laid flat, when they went to give him the laurel wreath that was given to a victor, he said, I don't want it. Because he says, there's no merit in extinguishing a people forsaken by their own God. That's an interesting quote, but it's wrong. God didn't forsake Israel, they forsook him. God didn't walk away from Israel, they walked away from him. That's why Christ wept. He knew the judgment was coming, and he knew the people had rejected him. Listen, I don't have an application this morning. Some days you don't. But what struck me as I got to the end of the study is as we enter this week and as we anticipate and celebrate his death and resurrection and as we think back to how his mercy has radically changed our lives, our hearts need to be broken for people that don't know that yet. And our hearts need to be aware that judgment is coming and people need Christ. Now, you've heard that a thousand times as a churchgoer, but I want you to hear it again. Judgment is coming, and people need Christ. And we need to pray that the Lord gives us the heart of Christ. And that we have boldness to tell people about Him, that we're the rocks that cry out, that we're praising God for His forgiveness, and that we're showing our love for Him every single day until He comes. Because he is coming soon. I'm not an alarmist. He is coming soon. And we need to be ready. And we need to have hearts that are broken for the lost so they will know and not face the judgment because even Jesus wailed when he thought about what was going to happen. We do not have the luxury anymore of being indifferent. We don't. And as a church and as a people, that has to be our passion. So let's pray together. Let's ask the Lord to give us that heart. Before I pray, I just want you to go to the Lord, just you and Him. I don't know how He's impressed your heart today. He's impressed my heart in a number of different ways. But as a believer, as his child, who is the children saying, can approach the throne of grace boldly. Talk to him right now. Tell him what, that you understand what he's put on your heart today. Ask him to give you the heart of Christ. Father, we can't ignore the facts anymore. We can't look to the side and pretend it's not going on. The world is rapidly changing. Israel is rapidly being surrounded. 
culture and even the church is becoming more cold toward you. Lord, we're humbled and broken by that. And I pray this morning for myself, for this church, that you would give us the heart of Christ. That we would be broken by sin, our own and others. That we would be conscientious and aware and watching, looking toward the sky, looking for your return. But Lord, not passively. Jude says, snatching people out of the fire. They've already got one foot in. Lord, you formed this church. You brought us together as a body. You put us here. You know why. We know why. We have a purpose. And I pray as your children and as your body, we would be faithful to that. Lord, help us. We know there are distractions. We know there are temptations. Those are no excuse. We're sanctified by you. We have your spirit There's no more time for us to be indifferent. So, Lord, as we enter this holy week and as we anticipate the celebration of the weekend, I pray that we would be bold in proclaiming our faith. I pray that we would be preparing our hearts for the weekend so we can joyfully, joyfully and sincerely praise you with all our hearts. And, Lord, we pray for a harvest. We don't know where they're coming from. Maybe it's through invitation. Maybe they're going to see it in the paper. We don't know. But Lord, bring people. So the gospel can be proclaimed. And so you can be glorified and so people can be saved. Lord, melt our hearts this week. Break our hearts. Help us to be aware more than ever, like I was Friday night, of how far gone the world is. And how much they need you. And Lord, as we're aware of that, humble our hearts for our own sin. Keep us close to you, we pray. May we not stray. We thank you and praise you for the good news. We thank you for your son who came and wept and died. But Lord, he's not dead. He's alive. That's what gives us hope. We praise you for that. May the words of our mouth and meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Our Lord, our strength and our redeemer. We praise you. Let's continue to praise him.